If you all could turn to Hebrews 7.25, it's our text for the morning. Hebrews 7.25 says, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we stand before you this morning, God, a needy people. Um, We really um, look to you, God, to see, see this verse come true in our lives and in our family. And in this church, Father, we really look to you now, Father, and we ask that you would look upon us, Father, that you would you would move in our midst, God, and that you would change change our position to be closer to you, Father, to change our reality to look more like yours, to change our understanding of you to be more complete, Father, and that in all things and at all times we could bring you glory as examples of your saving grace and of your saving power and of your saving love, Father. Help us now to understand what you've written here, Father. Help us to see what you've written, Father. Help us to internalize what you've written. And help us to live out the reality of all that is promised here, Father, in your word. I ask you to open your word to us now, Father. I ask that you would remove any hindrances from revelation, Father, anything that would, would halt people from being able to understand what's written here clearly, God. I ask that you would help me speak clearly, God, in a way that makes sense, so that we could see the beauty that's here in this verse, Father, that we could see the promise, the great and precious promises that you've given us, Father, and hold on to them with all of our might, Father, with all the strength that you've given us, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I looked up the word ulterior motivation in preparation for this sermon. Ulterior motivation is if the real motivation behind doing something is, is different and hidden from the actual motivation of doing something. And so in order to... To remove the possibility of ulterior motivation, I figured I should just start on the onset by telling you what my motivation is, and then it can't be ulterior, because ulterior sounds bad. Um, my motivation this morning is really simple. I want to see God raise my expectations, and I want to see God raise your expectations, and I want all of our expectations together as a church to be raised higher. And I think that this verse... It's just that. It's a call to believe higher. It's a call to believe better and bigger. It's a call not to stop right where we're at, but to believe beyond that. Wherefore, he is able to save to the uttermost all of those who come to God by him, seeing as he ever lives to make intercession for us. I want my expectations of what God can do. I've been lingering on this verse for... Over a month now, those guys hanging out with me on Thursday nights heard me preach a first message on this a month ago, a second message on this a few weeks ago. I was prepped to preach a message on this to jail last Sunday, and they kicked me out. <laughs> it turns out you have to have a gaze pass to get in there. But, uh, but I'm excited to look at this together with you guys as well. And uh, my expectations are so high that I actually wore a suit this morning. And... Uh, <laughs> Anybody that's watched me long enough knows that that's pretty high expectations. Nobody died. It's nobody's wedding. And just uh, high expectations, and I'm uncomfortable too. So let me just get that, get that out there. 
But if we're going to look at this verse, this verse is the capstone of what has taken the writer of Hebrews. And if I accidentally say Paul, I feel comfortable saying it was Paul, but scholars don't know who the guy who wrote Hebrews is, so bear with me. I'll just say the writer as best as I can. But the writer of Hebrews has spent all this time building this case for why the word start, the verse starts off with wherefore, because, or some translations say consequently. So he's, he's referencing at least this chapter, but I think the whole chapter up till now. This is, this is, he's getting to the thrust because Hebrews was written to Hebrews, to Jews, to try to explain to them why is the new covenant better than the old covenant? Why would we choose to walk away from the old covenant and embrace the new covenant? So the argument of Hebrews, front to back, is that Jesus makes a better high priest. That Jesus is more capable and more able to help us out. And so we get to Hebrews 7.25 and he says, Wherefore, because of everything that I've argued up to this place... Because of all these things that I've listed out one by one, and I've done arguments and refutations and examples, because of all these scriptures, and they go, I don't know, it's got to be close to quoting the Old Testament the most of any of the other books of the New Testament. And he comes and he says, Wherefore, because of all these things, He is able to save you to the uttermost. If you'll just come to Him, to God, by Him, seeing that He ever lives to make intercession for you. And so clearly in the next 45 minutes, we can't cover seven chapters of argument. But I want to encourage you guys that if God stirs your heart to look at it, because it's so encouraging to see all the ways explained of how much better off we are because Jesus Christ came to earth. And and what a higher place we now operate from because Jesus Christ came to earth. And how nothing is the same for those who come to God because Jesus Christ came to earth. We can't cover all of that in one morning. So I just want to concentrate on this verse. I want to put that out there that this verse is deep. And there's a rock-solid promise. You know, we just sang that song, I want to be like a tree, unmovable and unshakable. Let my roots go down deep in you. And guys, if all you, the only times you ever crack your Bible open is in a church, then your roots aren't going deep. No matter how good the church is, no matter how deep the church is, your roots are in Jesus Christ, your Savior, and nobody can build those roots for you. No one can build that foundation for you. That was the whole point of the, the parable of the foundations. So I beseech you guys to get deep roots. Deep roots for hard times. That's the only thing that will stand up. I want to write up on the board so we can all track along at the same time the important words of this verse. And we have, He is able to save to the uttermost All those who come to God by Him, because for those who come to God, He intercedes. So that's my outline. That's, that's what we're going to cover today. And each one of those points is a whole message in and of itself. The writer of Hebrews just spent seven chapters explaining why he's able why He can save, why when He saves it's to the uttermost, and how He intercedes for us. But I want to overview this verse and encourage you guys to raise your expectations. Wherefore He is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him, seeing He ever lives to make intercession for Him. 
If you guys can start turning to 2 Kings 13, I want to ask you guys a question. The question is this. Does what we expect from God influence what we experience or what we receive from God? Does what we expect from God influence what we experience and what we receive from God? Because think about that. If what we expect from God influences what we receive from God, then that would be a clarifier on all that we just wrote up on the board. Am I right? So what we want to ask ourselves is, before we start to look at these promises, could what me and you bring to the table in preconceived notions and in ideas affect what God could work in our lives, on our behalf, with these promises? 2 Kings 13 Starting in verse 14, it says, Now Elisha had fallen sick of his sickness, whereof he died. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face and said, O my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And Elisha said unto him, Take the bow and the arrows. And he took unto him the bow and the arrows. And he said unto the king of Israel, Put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. And Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek till thou have consumed them. And then he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said unto the king of Israel, Smite upon the ground. And he smote three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, Thou should have smitten the ground five or six times. Hadst thou smitten Syria till thou hast consumed it. Whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but three times. And if you jump down to verse 25, it says, Then Jehoash, who's this, who is Joash, the son of Jehoaz, took, out again, took again out of the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, the cities, which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoaz, his father, by war. Three times did Joash beat him and recovered the cities of Israel. We have an Old Testament clear example of... God's ability to save Israel to the utmost being limited in its scope and in its reach because of one man's expectations of what God was able to do on behalf of Israel. And you might think that, well, that's an Old Testament story. Is there any New Testament example? If you can turn over to Hebrews 4, right back where we started. Romans 15 verse 4 says, Now we know that all of these things that were written beforehand, that's the Old Testament, were written for our learning. And I want to turn to Pastor explain it this way, that every story of the New Testament is found in a theology. Every story of the Old Testament is found in a theology in the New Testament. Every theology that's laid out in the New Testament is found in type and in story in the Old Testament. And so what's the equivalent of that for us now in the New Covenant? Because we're not Israel, we're not fighting Syria, but we are fighting someone. And in Hebrews 4, starting in verse 1, it says, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left any of us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith and them that heard it. And so that story finds in the New Testament, it's parallel passage, that our expectations can influence the outcome. That our expectations of what God can do on our behalf can influence what God does ultimately on our behalf. Three times he smote Syria just like Elisha told him. 
I know we've already prayed once, but would you guys bow your heads and pray with me that we be able to get past the thing now that threatens our security, the thing now that gives us confusion, the thing now that we struggle with, so that for the next few moments we can come open-hearted before God's Word and ask God's Word to tell us what God is capable of, not our circumstances, not where we've been and the struggles we have and have had, but that we can see God's Word for what it actually says and not limit God by our expectation of what we think He can do on our behalf, but rather that we see God for His full potential of what He will do on our behalf. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we really, we want to see this, God. We want to see you save us to the uttermost. We want to see and feel and know you intercede on our behalf. We want to come boldly before the throne of grace, Father. Help us like you helped the man with the epileptic son, Father. Help our unbelief, God. Help our struggles. Help our fear and our doubt, Father. Overwhelm it with the beauty of your presence this morning, Father. Overwhelm it with who you actually are, God, and what you are in comparison to our biggest troubles, God, and how you are able to save us, Father. Open our eyes, God. Give us humility now to lay down our burdens for these few moments. And like Paul talked about the other night, get back to the cross. See what was accomplished at the cross, God, and be encouraged to take our arrows out and strike until we see your deliverance full and complete, Father. Help us, Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen. So if we can go back to Hebrews 7, we're going to start with He is able. He is able. The promise has to start with He is able. Because everything else would be redundant, right? Because if I said that He might save to the uttermost, well, the argument's over before it starts. Or if I say He hopes to save to the uttermost, then there's no argument to be had. And there's no hope and there's no secure foundation. There's no anchor of our soul. So the writer starts off with, He is able. He is able to save us to the uttermost. There's many proofs in Hebrews. And I just want to look at where the writer of Hebrews, you can turn back to chapter 1. He spends this whole book going through proofs of why this high priest is able to do what the last high priest couldn't do. This high priest is able to fulfill what the last high priest couldn't fulfill. But he starts his book out with what I think is the basis of his argument. And the first thing is that he is able because he is God. If you can turn to Hebrews 1, starting in verse 1, says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets... He has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Jesus Christ is able because Jesus Christ is God. All the limitations of the Old Testament priest, all the good intention help of counselors and psychology and everything is not able to save you, but Jesus is because Jesus is God. Because His power is not limited, because His strength cannot grow weary, because He has no end, because His kingdom lasts forever, because Jesus is God, He is able. And if we have a high priest who is God and we have a mediator who is God, who can lay a charge against the elect? Who can bring up something that he over, didn't see, that he couldn't see coming? What demand on his power and on his, on his supplies and on his riches can be laid out that he cannot supply? 
Jesus is able to save us because He is God. Because He was God. He came down and He bore the wrath of God on our, on our behalf. He did what no man could do. And that is stand before a righteous and holy God and bear all of His wrath and all of His anger on us who deserved it. No one could do that but God Himself. And now we have a mediator. Normally a mediator is less than the person that he represents, right? If Obama sends a mediator over to Iran, that mediator is beholden to what Obama tells him to say and do and think, right? He's not Obama. He's not the president. He's a mediator. But in our case, the mediator is the same as the president. He's the same as the king. He's not operating from what he hopes he can coerce out of something else. He is the same. He is one and the same. So when you lay your burden down at the cross of Jesus Christ, you lay your burden down in front of the judge, in front of the jury, and in front of your supply, in front of your riches, and in front of your hope. Jesus Christ is God, so He can save. He is able to save because He is God. We can hold on to that. In Hebrews 7, he goes down through and he says, Look, Melchizedek was a pretty great guy. Even Abraham offered sacrifices to him. But he was nothing compared to Jesus Christ. Look at the most well-intentioned spiritual man you know. Look at them. They die. They pass away. Their kingdom is not forever. But your king, your king never changes. Your savior never fails. Wherefore, he is able. But that's not it because I was, I was studying this last night and I hadn't really ever thought of it before, but it's important that he wasn't just God. Because if he was just God, all he would be was a greater magnification of the law. What do I mean by that? The law was given so that men could see the righteousness of God. If you read through Romans... The law is the righteousness of God revealed. The law was grace. Because without the law, there was no relationship. There was no ability to know what God was like and what He wanted from mankind. So God in His great grace and in His mercy gave men a law. Now if Jesus had came to earth and only been God, He would have been a perfect representation of what God's righteousness was like. But we would still be like the Old Testament people with a desire to do good, but a nature bent to do evil, with a heart to to have a relationship with this clearly all-powerful God, and yet a body and a mind completely unsubjected to all of His rules and all of His ways. And so it's important to us that He not just be God, but that He also be man. Because at the end of the day, it's us who have sinned, not God. It's us who have went astray, not God. So someone had to stand in our place, or as theologians will say sometimes, in our stock. Someone had to take on our, our place, our species, our humanity, so that they could represent us. And in that, Jesus Christ, your Savior, is not only fully God, but He is fully man. He is fully like you and like me, tempted in all ways like we are. Go to Hebrews 2, verse 9. But now we see Jesus, who was made just a little lower than the angels. Why? For the suffering of death. He was crowned with glory and honor, and he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he that sanctifieth and he who are sanctified are one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. This God... Now calls you brethren. 
This Savior changes your nature and now calls you brethren. You have a brother. We talked about the mediator. Your mediator is now the brother. How much harder do you think a mediator would work on behalf of his brother or his sister or his family member in prison than he would on just a random person? Your elder brother. Let's keep reading. Verse 12, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brother and I will sing in the midst of the church. I will sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver them through the fear of death, who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto us, that he might be merciful and faithful and high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor, to take care of, to have compassion on them that are tempted. Now our Savior, who is fully God and fully capable with all the power of the universe on his side, on your side, steps into your frame and he feels the long nights and he feels the struggle and he knows the pain. So this Savior that we're looking at today He is able to save you because he is both God and he is man. He has no limit on his resources and no limit on his understanding of what you struggle with. He has no limit of his understanding and his ability to relate, to crucify the flesh, to walk not in his own way, but the way of the Father. This high priest, he is able. The last one, died. The one before him died. The best example you could chalk up as a role model, he died. But Jesus remains forever. On the darkest night, on the longest day, he remains the same. So we have this anchor, this anchor within our soul that our God prevails. So we say that God is able. The next phrase that we see is God is able to do what? To save, right? That word is sozo, which I'm sure we've all heard before. Which is just the Greek word for save. It means to protect, to deliver, to preserve, to heal, to make whole. In Luke 8.36, if you remember the, the, the Gadarene demoniac, he, he gets saved by Jesus. And when all the crowd comes out and sees him, it says in this right mind, they saw that Jesus had healed him. And that word is sozo. It's the same word that here he is able to save. The word is interchangeably in the New Testament, interchanged with heal and save. Because it's what it means. We've been taught this, guys. But we've got to hold on to this. Because here's the thing. What else do you have to hold on to? If we start to redefine what salvation is, what else are we going to redefine? For the longest time we've lived in a, in a culture, in, a, in a, a world, in our country anyway, 
that would give you freedom from sin, but not freedom from sickness. And now we've even given up sin. Now this country doesn't believe that you can be set free from the power of sin anymore. Are we going to follow man's definition of God's salvation or are we going to let God define salvation for us? For the longest time, it was always, you had your D.L. Moody's and your George Whitfield's. They understood that there was freedom from alcohol and there was freedom from sin and there was freedom. They, they taught it. They preached it. They lived it. John Owen, a Puritan, said, be killing sin or it be killing you. They expected victory over sin. And now what do they tell people? You're an addict. You'll never change. It's a disease. It's a genetic disorder. You'll always be a homosexual. You'll always be this way. We've given up everything. What does God's cross stand for if it doesn't set us free from sin? And he says it also sets us free from sickness. So even if we struggle with sin, it doesn't make God's cross a lie. And even if we struggle with sickness, it doesn't make God's salvation a lie. Because if you tell me it's not working, I have to say, well, I'm going to stick with this. Because it's the only thing that's promised to be there in eternity when I get to the other side. You're not promised to meet me on eternity and tell me I did a good job by your standards, but this word is there to promise me that when I get to eternity, it will be judged by this word. And if this word says that the word salvation means to protect, to heal, and save, and deliver, and to make whole, and that's what he's able to do, then we have to hold on to that. We have to start swinging those arrows back at the ground. Because where is our expectation? Are we be like Israel? And we say, okay, well, I'll take this part of the cross. But I, I, I just don't see how that other part works. I just don't see how that... Well, as soon as you... I still hold. And I don't understand liberal theologians. If you're going to walk away from a verse in the Bible, just walk away from the whole thing. I'm serious. If you decide that at this point, okay, well, obviously that verse can't mean that God's wrath was stored up for us. Well, it says God's wrath was stored up for us. We've got to stick with this. As soon as we start saying, well, I don't think that verse can really mean that, so here's what I think it means. Well, then someone has just elevated themselves over the Bible. Someone has just established themselves as a source of supreme authority, and you're in trouble. Because they will die. They will change. They will fail. We take God's word and we say, God, you be true and let every man be a liar. Whether I see it, whether I don't see it. Whether I possess it yet or don't possess it. Israel was promised the land long before the land was all theirs. And so also we've been promised an inheritance that we have not yet fully received. But if our expectations have any amount of influence on our experience, then I ask God to raise my expectations. Then I realize that the point of attack for the devil is always going to be my expectation. Because think about this, guys. If our expectation does have any influence on our experience of God's ability, then where else would the devil attack? Because if he can get us to lower our expectation, then he wins the war. That's all he has to do. Where are you out to where you no longer expect God to mediate on your behalf in this situation? And that situation remains. And three times you strike Syria, but not four or five. Your expectation needs to be guarded. I beg of you guys not to lower your expectation. Everyone out there is doing it for you. You know, we've <clears throat> and talking to these guys on Thursday night. They, they don't have any hope that it could get better. 
No one's told them that there is power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. That you don't have to live with that all your life. You might struggle right now. It might be a temptation right now. It might be a hold up right now, but not always. Because he didn't die for you to always struggle. He died that you might have life and life more abundant. That doesn't sound like a life subjected to the things he said he has to judge. Why would God save you and leave you subject to the very things he has to judge? It makes no sense. I'm telling you guys, raise your expectations. I'm telling me, raise my expectations. Don't let the devil wear you down to where you begin to expect less of what God can do in your situation. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how long it gets, guard that expectation. Because that's what we've been hearing for 30 years. Expectation is just faith. It's just that knowledge. It's that confidence that this will turn out right. That this will turn out the way it was promised to me. Now we come to the word uttermost, which just means to the full end entirely. So we say that God is able to save all the way. I read one commentator who said it this way. If a man was crossing on a really cold night and there was ice over a lake and he was trying to cross this lake and all of a sudden he fell through the ice and he's going to drown out there, but somebody walking by sees him and carefully makes his way out to him and pulls him up onto the shore but then leaves him there to die of hypothermia. Could we call that man saved? No. We are in danger of doing just that if we preach anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Old Testament, he said, I have this against the prophets and the teachers and the priests. You have healed my people, but slightly. If Jesus Christ went through all that he went through, lowered himself to our estate to work on our behalf, a great salvation, who are we to define it? We aren't to define it. We are to believe it. Because when God speaks, it's fact. When we speak, it's opinion. So we stick with fact over opinion. Because I have a lot of questions like everybody. But I have to go back to what do I know for sure? What do I know for sure? Not what... Not all the questions that I can't answer. Not all the things that I'm not sure of. But what do I know for sure? Because if we let the devil stick us out there in the wilderness where we're not sure of anything and we spend all of our time trying to find answers to questions that we'll never find the answers to this side of eternity, the devil will steal our expectation and we will live our lives right there in the wilderness. We have to return to the bedrock of what we know to be true and operate from that. Because that is what Jesus is looking for. When I return, will I find faith? Not will I find people who have all the answers. Not will I know people that find people that know the future and saw the future coming and predicted it and were right. No. That's what we look for. That's what we admire. But when Jesus comes, He looks for faith. And we don't have to have faith for things that we see. We have to have faith for the things that are unseen. So that must mean that he's coming back for a people that are looking for things that they don't yet see. An expectation to see them. Our foundation is so secure, unmovable, unshakable. Our foundation has withstood assaults from all quarters at all times since its inception. You know, occasionally I'll talk to people that are influenced by liberal theology and they'll assume that this liberal theologian came up with this idea last night. 
and that suddenly there's this, this flaw in the Bible that no one's seen. It's a joke. All theology has been around since the 300s, 300 years after Jesus Christ. It's just a regurgitation of old heresy. That's why we can stand and say, for all of those years, men have fought, sought to find a way to disprove what this book says, and yet here, thousands of years after Jesus Christ walked the earth, it still stands. It's still unshakable and unmovable. <clears throat> Jesus Christ, Galatians 3.13 says, Jesus Christ set us free from the curse of the law. And I could spend a whole message just on that passage, but I want to encourage you guys to find some time and read Deuteronomy 28. Because when he said that Jesus Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, he didn't mean a vague curse. He didn't mean a non-specific, life-threatening issue. He very specifically said the curse of the law, and this was coming from Paul, who was an Old Testament scholar, who quoted Deuteronomy and Isaiah probably more than any other book in the Bible. He was quoting Deuteronomy 28, where he says, all these curses will come upon you if you forsake the Lord your God. Well, guess what? You were born fallen. You were born under that curse of the law because God had revealed His righteousness and you preferred sin over His righteousness. So you live under that curse of the law. Jesus Christ died to set us free from the curse of the law. What Jesus Christ died to set you free from, you shouldn't possess. Just turn back to Deuteronomy 28 really quick. You know, we make so many assumptions. Deuteronomy 28, verse 61 Verse 60 and 61, it says, Moreover, he will bring upon thee all the diseases of Egypt, which thou was afraid of, and they shall cling to thee. Also every sickness and every plague, which is not written in the book of this law, them will God bring upon thee until thou be destroyed. You guys, when, when Paul said the curse of the law, he's specifically referring to this. When the Israelites went into Israel, they had two mountains, and one group stood on this mountain and read the curses, and one group stood on this mountain and read the blessings. That represented two kingdoms, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. By being invited into the kingdom of light, by being ushered in to the kingdom of light, we no longer live under the shadow of that kingdom of darkness. And let me tell you, the kingdom of darkness is not just bad things happening to you. It's not just your life not working out right. If you can just hop down just a few verses to verse 63, it says, And it shall come to pass that as the Lord rejoice over you to do you good and to multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to naught, that you shall be plucked off the land whither thou goest to possess it. When you fight against the revealed righteousness of God, you align yourself against the only power source in the universe. You align yourself against His wrath and against His judgment. He said, I... We'll see to it that you are destroyed. If you sit here this morning unconverted, you sit in the shadow of that kingdom of darkness. Ephesians 2 says that we were all children of wrath. That means that those not under the kingdom of light, those not under the blessing of the kingdom are in the kingdom of darkness. And that it is not your bad habits that pursue you. It is not the drugs that you do. It is not the things that you watch that pursue you. But it is the God who sees all and knows all. And in the end, we'll judge your case. So when you sit unconverted, stubborn in your ways, defiant against the creator of the universe, know this, that that one who you now defy will be the one that you ultimately stand for. And tomorrow is never promised. So today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. 
You have heard that He is able. When I say He is able, I mean to convert you. Why is He able to convert you? Because the first thing He does is He buys you back from the kingdom of darkness. Because all the things that you owe, because all the things that you did, every sin that you've committed, that the devil has been keeping tally of, just like God, to hold over your head, to oppress and to bind you, Jesus Christ stepped up in your place and said, I'll pay all that. And He redeemed your life from destruction. He paid the price. So if He's paid the price, who are you to receive from the devil what Jesus paid the price to set you free for? That's your sins. That's your addictions. That's the things you don't want other people to know about that you do. You will be set free if you come to Jesus. You will know His forgiveness and His power. This isn't a social club that we get together and imagine how we can make each other's lives better. This is a group of people who have been changed by the Almighty God and want to see His fullness. Who want to know His complete redemption, not partial. You want to be set free? God will set you free today. Today, if you hear His voice, I will in no wise turn, apart, turn away anyone that comes to Me. God desires that no one perish. If you perish in your sins, it's because you wanted to. Light, this is the condemnation that came into the world. The light came into darkness. And the darkness enjoyed the darkness more than the light. So I plead with you, if you're unconverted, to be converted. You're not going to outlive this king. You're not going to find a different judge. The sins that you committed yesterday won't be forgotten tomorrow. Be reconciled unto God. And for those of us that have been converted, stand clearly in the sunshine of the mountain of God and the kingdom of light, set free from all bondages. And yes, we struggle and yes, we fight, but there is victory because He came to give us life and life more abundant. And this last reason here is the why. Because it says, for all those that come to God, He intercedes. See, you have deists like Benjamin Franklin who, who believe that God was a creator who created the world. He spun it like a top and then he stepped back to see how we would do. And I'm afraid that a lot of Christians have that same mentality. So often I hear people say, I'm just doing the best I can. I'm just trying to get by. You have assumed the role of Savior. You have assumed that you can figure it out on your own. But here's the thing. God in His wisdom knew that we didn't need a past salvation. We need a current salvation. We need help today. Because today is where we're struggling. Whatever yesterday was is what yesterday was, but today we need salvation. And the way I understand it is there's two words and phrases in the Greek that, that say come. And one of them is a once and done. You come, you know, yesterday Keaton came over to my house. He did that yesterday. He just came. But that's not what this word is. This word is a, a frequent, an over again, a coming and coming and coming. So he is able to save to the uttermost those who come and come and come and come. Why? Because He makes intercession for them. Because when, when we go before that throne of grace that before would have consumed us in the wrath of God, we are preceded by our elder brother. By the one who's just like us, who stood just where we are, did it without fault, bore our penalty, and He goes before us into the presence of Almighty God and says, this one's with me. You can listen to Him. And we're going to re- grant His request. So when you come before God, that's why it says come boldly. Don't wait till you're not weak because you'll never make it. Don't wait till you're sinless because that's what the whole point of all of this is that. None of us will ever be sinless. None of us will ever have our act together. 
None of us will ever have all of our questions answered. If we wait on these things, if the devil keeps us in the outer court until all the answers are had, then we will never make it before the throne of grace. But if Jesus Christ goes before us, then we can go boldly before the throne of grace and find mercy in our time of need, which is right now, which is in our sin, which is in our weakness, which is in our frailty and our confusion and our doubt. You guys, Jesus said, this is what I look for. Those who want to come to me. The man with the epileptic son who said, help my unbelief. What did Jesus say? Well, I think you probably need to get some more faith first. I think, I think maybe if you do, maybe go home and read your Bible. Here's some verses. And if you up yourself a little bit, then I'll come. No, that renders the cross useless. Because if there was just some things that we could do to earn God's grace, then everything else that God did was useless. If there was something we could do to save ourselves, if there was some reason within ourselves that we could earn entrance before the throne of God, then Jesus is unnecessary. But if you know anything of the Gospel, you know Jesus must have been entirely necessary because of the great price that God the Father and God the Son paid on our behalf. And now it says that He ever lives. The whole point of His existence now, what He does every day, sun up to sun down through the night is intercede on your behalf. That's why we can come boldly. Because the person that meets us there is like us. And He takes us into the presence of the One who's not like us at all. God. And He promises to conform us and make us look like that. And He promises to hear our request and make them known to the Father. And He says, ask and you will receive. Doesn't a father know how to give good gifts to his children? So we have an ever-present intercession on our behalf. Now in all this, we've only missed one phrase. Can anybody pick out the one phrase? We got uttermost. (laughs) By him. And I think this whole verse hinges on these two words. The whole book, the whole gospel hinges on these two words, by Him. This is where I got the expectations. This is where I got my next point. It's got to be by Him. And we can turn over to John 10. And we know this, and it seems academic to read it again, but I know in my own life, so much of what I attempt to do to feel closeness to God is not come to God by Him, but come to God based on my merits, based on how much time I spent in the Bible last night, based on how much time I spent fasting or praying for these things. Those are what precede me before the throne of God. <clears throat> but listen to Jesus here, starting in verse 7. He says, John 10, verse 7, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, and the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he will be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And I continue to say, if you are here and you are unconverted by all the mercies of God and all that you've heard all these years sitting here, I plead with you. This is just an open invitation. Look, I'm the door. I'm what you need. All you have to do is come through this door. Walk through that door right there. I'm on the other side. I'll forgive you. I'll heal you. I'll make you right. 
I'll change your heart, your motivations, your minds, your desires, the goal of your life, and I'll do it all because First John 3, verse 3 says, He who has his hope in himself purifies himself. What's the hope? That when we see, we don't know what he looks like, but when we see him, we believe that we will look like he does. And so if you just come this morning, no matter where you are, even if you're saved, if you just come this morning through the door unto God and say, here's my struggle, here's my problem, here's my holdup, I want to leave this here and trust that in these empty hands you'll fill them up with your spirit. That in these empty hands you'll, you'll place expectation. You'll place trust. Because He's not giving us back us. When we give Jesus us, He restores Himself to us. That's the new covenant. It's not that He would write our laws down and put them on our refrigerator for us to notice on our way out the door but rather that He would write His law in our heart so we would have the constant indwelling Jesus Christ to empower us to go out and live this life. And sometimes in the grind of everyday life we forget this. We forget the fact that the the ruler of the universe, the God incarnate, the Almighty One dwells in our hearts, dwells there, continually interceding on our behalf. And instead, we expect God to make traffic flow easier. We expect God to not burn the bagel. But beyond that, we don't really know what to pray. You know, I work in people's houses all the time and almost everybody has some scripture verse or another on the wall and almost nobody actually believes that that scripture verse means anything. When he comes, will he find faith? Will he find an expectation that he can save to the uttermost those who come to God by him? Or will he find a people skeptical that there was a real salvation worked out on their behalf, that their experiences have disproved the cross somehow, and that all that he died to to do on our behalf really wasn't so important to us as getting us what we need and what we want. But this whole verse, all these promises, they're all worthless if we leave out those two words, by him. You can forget it. If you come come to God any other way, you have no ability You cannot save yourself, even partially, let alone to the uttermost. You have no intercessor. You're on your own. You stand before God on your own. And no man will stand before God and live. No man can be justified before God. So what are we to do? You know, we, we started off by talking about expectations. We wanted to raise expectations. I want you guys to think now okay I tell you raise expectations and you think to yourself well first off if you're unconverted you should think to yourself I have no expectation I don't have tomorrow I have no future only the wrath of God awaits me should I die if you are converted your expectations should be high because of everything we just read But it could be possible that in this room, myself included, that we hear these great and precious promises as we've heard over the last 30 years. But our expectations are not heightened because we've heard them so many times that we are quick to bring up all the experiences in our life that seem to go against those expectations. But if you say, I really want to raise my expectations, how can I do it? I think there's essentially two ways that we go out to try to do it. And the first thing that we do is we, we just go out and do things. And that can be whatever you want to put in the bank. Blank. More church attendance. Hanging out with the right crowd. More Bible reading. Fasting and praying. 
Not that there's anything wrong in any of those things. Not that we shouldn't all be doing those things. But if that's the way that we seek to go out, because we say that if I do these things, I will improve myself and I will be better and I will be stronger and more equipped to go out and do what God has called me to do. Well, then I have a verse for you. Turn to Romans 4. And there's a great problem that's here. Romans 4, starting in verse 4. Now to him that works, now to him that worketh is the reward, not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on he that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. See, what, what he's saying is, you say, I'm going to go out and do things. And what does that do? You go out and do things, and all of a sudden God is indebted to you, right? If I ask you to come help me tomorrow, hang cabinets, and I say, I'll pay you $8 an hour. And at the end of the day, you come help me put in cabinets, and I pay you $8 an hour. Was that grace? Was that mercy? Was that favor? No. Was it a gift? You earned it. You earned every penny of that $8 an hour. You fulfilled the requirements of that $8 an hour. You took it upon yourself and you met the requirements to get the $8 an hour. And he says right here, those that do that, what they receive is counted to them as debt. The works that you, that you want to precede you before the throne of God you're telling God, okay, God, I got 15 minutes in front of your throne because yesterday I spent two hours in prayer. See, God, today I'm going to get the answer to my prayer because I did this, this, and this. Is that possible that that's crept into our thinking and into my thinking? I know it has. You know, we've been in a long standing trial, and in a trial, <laughs> there's very few things you don't try at some point on the way. I'm just being honest. But to those that labor, it's counted to them as debt, not grace. But to them that believe, it is accounted to them for righteousness. So if we, we do things, then all of a sudden we believe God is in our debt. We end up with low expectations. Why is that? Because God is never in our debt. God never owes us anything. You have air in your lungs. You are sitting upright in your chair. You owe God everything, and God owes you nothing. If the word of His power that now holds everything together were to release you, and you were to poof right there in your chair and be no more, that would be no repayment on your debt to God. God owes us nothing. So those that work and believe that they've indebted God to answer because of their work have misunderstood all of Calvary. Because if there's work that we can do, then let's be about it. Let's make it happen. And what does that lead to? Low expectations. Because what happens? Nothing. Just like before. When we, when we sought to kick that addiction or we sought to get away from that sin or I'm not going to talk bad about people anymore. Paul just preached a really good message on loving people. I'm not going to do that anymore. And we go out and what we do, it's not 15 minutes before we're trash talking somebody. Because in our own power, we are powerless. Because that is the whole point of the gospel is to bring us to our knees and say, you can't do it. How many stories in the Bible... How many examples and types and a whole system of religion and the Israelite sacrifices does God have to give us before we admit 
that we are incapable of pleasing God. We are incapable of receiving from God. But God gives us gifts. But God gives us righteousness. That's why righteousness is by faith and not by works. And so here we have a way to lower our expectations, I believe. And I'm citing a lot of Bible reading so far. You've got Hebrews 1 to 7. You've got Deuteronomy 28. If you tack Isaiah 58 on there, Tanner quoted this the other day, but it starts off with, you draw near to God often. And you read and you fast. But do you really think that's what I wanted from you? Go home and read it. It's an indictment against those people because they had figured out, if I do things, then God has to give me the rain for my harvest. And He has to give me money. And He has to give me everything I want if I just do things. And what did Jesus say? He said, you think I don't see that you're bringing me the sick and the lame? You think that you don't, I don't see that you're bringing me the smallest of your flock and not the biggest? You think that you've hidden your heart from me? All those things, he said, I don't desire your sacrifices and your offerings. I desire obedience from the heart. Read through the New Testament. What is God constantly saying? I want a people to serve me in joy. I want a people that serve me in love. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. Not thou shalt do everything that the Lord God says, because otherwise he'll squash you like a bug. He took care of that at the cross. He's not going to squash you because you're his. Because He did all of that work to bring you into favor with God. And so that work stands sure and steadfast. You can come to Him and say, God, here's my need. I'm yours and I don't have what I need. And He says, I knew it the whole time. What are you waiting for? Come boldly before the throne of grace that you may find help in time of need. Don't wait till you kick the habit. Don't wait till you have it all together. Come now before the throne of grace and find out if there's not grace for your time of need. Right now where you're at. Because there's not one of us that can stand before God and expect to be heard on our own merits. There's not one of us who has any hope to be understood, to be reprieved, or receive the benevolence of God based on our own merits. But in Jesus Christ, we can go boldly before the throne of grace with no fear whatsoever of retribution because our price has already been paid. Because the thing that the devil would seek to stop us from entering at the court before we go into the presence of Almighty God, that debt's already been paid. So now we come boldly before the throne of grace. So what, what can we do? We want to raise our expectations. I believe biblically, the only thing that God wants to see from us is our surrender. And surrender is not a passive word. Because I think a lot of people say, okay, well, I can't do things, so I'm going to surrender. And what that means is I won't read my Bible tomorrow, and I won't cry out to God for intervention, and I won't seek His help, and I'll just sit here, and I hope He shows up. Well, I was thinking about that this week, and I was trying to think of, you know, the Civil War, you have the North and the South. Imagine if General Lee had showed up and said, okay, well, we're going to surrender, but we want to keep our flag, we want to keep our weapons, we're going to keep our army together, and we want you to still call us the Confederacy, but you guys win. <laughs> Isn't that what we do to God? And then we wonder why His ability to save isn't manifested in our life. We come to God and we say, okay, well, I see you're, you're more powerful and you can do all these things and I'm okay with giving up this one bad thing in my life or maybe giving you 15 more minutes out of my day. But I'd like to keep everything else intact if you don't mind. I heard one person say, God's just like a GPS. If you just take a wrong turn, He'll just recalculate. Well, I understand maybe a little bit of truth in that, but that is not how God operates. 
You are not free just to bumble around the country because he's given you a map. And he's told you to surrender, to get out of the steering wheel and let him drive. So your driving is a problem. So we say that surrender is not passive. The South had to actively do something to surrender. You cannot sit here and say, I've surrendered before God and only think of one small sin or one hold up in your attitude that you're going to give to God and hope to see his salvation. God wants you. You know, got me, when I was thinking about the South and the North, it got me thinking about flags. I'm trying to think of how can we illustrate this in such a way to make it make sense. Because we use these church words like surrender and redemption and reconcile. And I think sometimes we don't have a, a picture to go along with it. And so we struggle to see practically how this theology impacts our daily life. Because this impacts your life tomorrow. It impacts your life right now today. While you're sitting here hearing my words, you're either surrendering or you're fighting. Because you can't be passive in this war. Because you're in the kingdom of darkness, you're in the kingdom of light, there's no secondary choice. There's not a gray kingdom. There's not an in-between. So we're either actively surrendering or we're actively resisting because we don't want that. Because we don't want that. Well, when we don't want that, what we don't want is Jesus Christ to be our Savior. We can spin it any way we want, but when we refuse to surrender, what we are telling Jesus is that no. And it got me thinking about flags and what are flags. Flags normally represent the sovereignty the independence, and a unique characteristic about a certain country, right? They'll put some kind of insignia, don't tread on me, what's that supposed to say? Don't mess with this guy, you know? So the flag represents a country, right? It says that we are independent from everybody else. We're America. Britain has their flag. Their flag represents them as individuals and as nations. Now, in the driveway of your life, what flag is waving right now? What do you really want to be known as? See, now we're getting to what surrender is. You know, as we all have things. For me, a big thing growing up was I want everybody to know that I was a musician and that I was creative. So that was the flag I raised up. I want people to know this. That's, if, if people don't know anything about me, I want them to know that about me. You know, we live in a society that, that has no shortage of things that we want people to know us for. The food we eat, the car we drive, the diet we're on, the... Uh, business we run, the way we get ahead in life. I mean, everybody has something that they want to be known for, that they're clever with their money, or that they're, they're this or they're that. We, we want something to precede us so that people look at us and think, man, that person is fill in the blank. Sur- surrender is not adding a flag to your flagpole. It's not, there's my flag, Now I'm going to raise up the Bible flag underneath it because sometimes I read my Bible, but normally this is me. That's not surrender. If the South had done that, the North would have kept fighting. If any army had ever done that, the other army would have continued to fight because the war is not yet won. If we want to see our expectations raised, if we want to experience God's ability in our life, the only way to do it is through surrender. There's just not another way. Your life... Your flag has to come down. And so when people pull in the driveway of your life, they don't see you. They say Jesus Christ. And yes, we do all those things. We all have fun hobbies and things we like to do, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But is your life surrendered to Jesus Christ? Is that the first and foremost thing that people know about who you are and what you're going to do in your business, in your day-to-day life, how you raise your kids, the person you are, is the first thing that people think of is that person is like Jesus I pray and I hope that I become that someday. I pray and I hope that all of us become that someday. 
I've met men that that was what they were like. Mr. Hamilton, we all knew what he was about. Yeah, he had fun things he did in his life, but he was about Jesus. He was about the book. May it be so in our case. May we in humility lower down all the things that we hope people remember us for and raise up the flag of Jesus and say, you and you alone, Jesus. But there's an important part of this, and that is love. Jesus does not expect you to be won over by arguments. See, Christianity is different from every other religion in this way. And that is that I didn't step up here today and expect to have an argument that was so irrefutable that you had to go with my argument. You know, I actually read there was a man named Francis Schaeffer who one of his converts said that. Well, he just shot down all my arguments. And that's a weak conversion because there might be somebody tomorrow that might beat all my arguments. There might be somebody smarter than that. If you come to Christ because it seemed logical at the time, because it seemed like fire insurance, or because it seemed like better than what you had going on, that might be in some form of surrender, but it's not in a surrender because he's a benevolent and good God. It's in a surrender because you felt hemmed in and didn't feel like you had any other choice. So here's the difference of Christianity. Christianity does not count on converts being won by argument. They count on, arg- on converts being won by sight. What we see of God is how we are converted. How does faith come? By hearing and hearing of the Word of God. Our faith comes through revelation. And so we can add another step in our journey to high expectations. And that is C. Who does Jesus say that my Father will manifest Himself to? He says, those who love me and obey my commandments, to them my Father will manifest Himself. That manifestation of who Jesus Christ is is beyond a shadow of doubt guaranteed to incite your love for Him. Your love for a Savior so kind to stoop so low on your behalf is the gas in your tank that gives you the ability to walk out to that front flag and burn it to the ground. An excitement that now people don't have to see you when they pull in the driveway. They can see Jesus. That now you aren't limited by your holdups and your hangups, but that you have unlimited ability in Jesus Christ to be like Jesus Christ. John just taught a message on conformity to Christ. That's the point of this whole Christian walk. Conformity to Jesus Christ. Because in that, the Father is glorified. But you say to yourself, okay, so those that see the Father love the Father. So how can I make myself see? To him who labors, it is counted as debt. But by him who by faith comes to God, it is perceived as righteousness. See, we're all at different walks and different places in our walk. And years ago, I heard a man preach, and I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he had seen something that I hadn't seen yet. I could go read the same verses he was reading. I could open my Bible to the same place, and I could even follow his argument. But I couldn't make my heart feel what he clearly was feeling. I think that's one of the 
reasons I would say, find godly men and listen to them. Because they'll call you higher and higher. Because you have a tendency to hang out with people at your level and you think that this is what Christianity looks like and it's sad. Find people that have the stamp of God on their life. The scars of following Jesus. And then follow Jesus. But you follow Jesus not because you have to. Not because you should. But because you really want to see Jesus. What was Moses' thing? God's starting to wipe out the nation. He comes to Moses on that mountain and he says, I'm going to wipe them all out. And Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. And God says, okay, because of your intercession, I won't. And what does Moses say? He says, first of all, he says, don't leave us. Don't, don't send us off. Don't let us receive everything that we want and not go with us, which is what I'm afraid a lot of us have fallen into sometimes. We want everything Jesus offers, but we don't necessarily want Jesus with us. But Moses said, I, I don't want to go on the promised land if you don't go with us. And Jesus said, God said, I'll go with you. And he said, okay, now show me your glory. There's what we need. There's what you've got to get. Because the best intentioned counsel, the most accurate scripture study, it all is meaningless until you see the truth. You can have no expectation for what you've never seen. You can't expect God to do something you've never seen God offer to do for you. You see it. And because you see it, you believe it. So where are we? We're asking about how can we raise our expectations. I'm inviting you to surrender to God's love. To surrender your life and say, okay, here's what's defined me to this point, but it will define me no longer. Before, people knew me as angry. They knew that I would be greedy. They knew that I was addicted. They knew that I had holdups. They knew I had these things, but these things will define me no longer. I will now surrender my life to Jesus Christ and I will watch Him live out through me. And I guarantee you, because Jesus is ultimately beautiful, that as we surrender, we will see Jesus as more and more beautiful. See, when you see beauty, you don't need someone to argue with you that it's beautiful. You don't see tour guys running people out to the Grand Canyon and being like, no, it's beautiful, look. And everybody's like, I don't get it. Where's the beauty? No, right there. <laughs> but isn't that how we sometimes evangelize? Isn't that it? Because we assume that our evangelistic techniques are on us. Not so. We say, look, the Grand Canyon. And they're like, oh, look, the Pepsi. And we just keep saying, the Grand Canyon. And they're like a candy bar. We're like, the Grand Canyon. And eventually, by God's grace, He grabs them and He makes them turn around and He makes them see the beauty of God that is. And no man can explain that to you. No one can explain to you why God is beautiful. You must see it. And if you never see it, you haven't had it. And if you don't have it, you are outside of His grace. The beauty of God is what brings the man to surrender and say, you are better. I don't come to you because you'll make my life better. I don't come to you because I like what you offer. I don't come to you because I don't like the idea of hell. I come to you because you are worthy. Because if I end up in hell, and I've served you my whole life, which is impossible, but if it were, it would be okay. Because you are utterly beautiful. Now that is not going to happen. But I only use it to illustrate that we are not in this to see what we can get from God. We do not twist God's arm to see what He can give us, how much benevolence we can squeeze from His grace. But rather, we come to God like the three Hebrew boys who stood before the ruler and said, the ruler said, your God cannot save you. And they said, we don't even have to answer that. 
Because our God is able and our God will save us from your hand. And let it be known to you, King, that even if we perish, our God is still faithful. Where are those people today? Those Hebrew boys had seen beauty. They had seen truth. And they had decided that everything was worth that beauty and truth. They would walk into the furnace because God was ultimately beautiful. See, if I convince you on any other lines, you'll give up tomorrow. I can tell you that if you continue in that addiction, you'll have a lifetime of debt. And you can tell yourself, well, I'm going to do better for my kids and my family. And you might do better for a little bit. But you're on your own steam there, brother. You're going to run out. What you need is a revelation. What did Jesus tell his disciples? I speak in parables. Because if they saw and if they heard, they would be healed. There's an infallible principle of Scripture that revelation is the door to Christianity. My sheep hear my voice and they follow Him. So where are we at? We want to raise our expectations. We want to see God. We know that He loves us and because He loves us, we love Him. So we surrender. None of these other things are in our hands. We can't control our expectation. We can't control the seeing, the loving. I can't make my heart love God more. That's what tripped me up all those years ago, hearing a man talk about God's love and thinking, man, never once in my life have I ever loved God like that or even thought about loving God like that. Didn't even think it was possible. And guess what? I didn't wake up the next morning and cry over reading my Bible. But I determined that I was going to listen to as many sermons on the gospel and I was going to read this Bible until it become, became who I am. Why? So that I could be better? No, that's Jesus' work in me. I can't be better. Because I want to see what really happened on that cross. Because I'm confident, like Paul taught the other night, that if you see the cross, if you see it, you'll live the rest of your life devoted to it. If you only hear me talk about it, if you're only convinced because of a good argument, you won't make it. The El Moody said, a faith that fizzles at the finish had a flaw in it at the first. Man can do a lot of things under their own steam, but they can't save themselves. They can't make it. I want to encourage you guys that God is able to save to the uttermost all of those who come to God by Him. I want you guys to turn over to Isaiah 45 and we'll close. You know, we hear messages like this and we cover a lot of ground. And I want to leave you guys with hope. Isaiah 45. This isn't complicated, guys. The Bible is deep. Everything that pertains to life and godliness is covered in the Bible. We'll spend all eternity mining the depths of the riches of His grace. But this afternoon, what God wants for you to do this afternoon is very simple. It's a single choice. Because nothing else is in your hands. You can't save yourself. You can't make your situations come out all right. You can't fix the attitude or the inclinations of your heart. You can't save the family member. Nothing is within your realm of possibility to do on your own behalf. So what do we do, God? We want to see you. We want to have high expectations. You know, Charles Spurgeon was one of... One of the greatest preachers down through the line of preachers, he was really good. But his conversion story, he was wrestling with all these really deep theological ideas. He grew up in a Christian home, and back then a Christian home meant they would put you in theological classes and you had depth. You were deep. You knew all the predestination, election. But the problem with knowing all that stuff with no spirit of God in your life is it's just confusion. Predestination, election makes no sense to the unconverted. 
So Charles Spurgeon, he was really fighting this. And Well, what's my part? How can I get saved if it's all predestined? What am I supposed to do? And he's walking to church and it starts snowing so hard that he can't make it to his normal church. And so he turns aside and he goes in this little storefront church and there's only five, ten people there maybe, just not, not the normal size. Even the pastor hadn't showed up because of the snow. And so somebody's sitting there in the crowd and everybody's kind of awkward. So this older guy stands up and he's clearly not a speaker and he clearly isn't a preacher. So he stands up and he just starts reading. And when he's reading, he gets down to Isaiah 45, verse 22. He says, Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. And then he looked right at Charles Spurgeon and he said, Young man, you look. Look at Jesus. And he kept saying it. And right then, Charles Spurgeon got saved. Because for the first time in his life, he realized that his effort was not dependent on his power, but the same power that raised up Jesus Christ from the dead will dwell in you and quicken your mortal body. So those things that hold you up today before you surrendered to God won't be the same things that hold you up tomorrow. Because he's given you power over sin. He's given you authority over sickness. Nothing by any means will hurt you. So I leave you with this. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. If you do nothing else this afternoon, just go home and say, God, I look to you. Tomorrow has all its problems. My character hasn't changed. My personality isn't different. But I, I look to you. Because all that look to him will be made whole. Right? We sing that. Is that, is that real? And that work? Can God do that for you? And such a simple act is just taking your eyes off your circumstances, taking your eyes off the way we've always done things and saying, no more, no more. I've always done it this way and I've always had what I've always had. I want different. I want better. I want Jesus. And so Jesus comes to you this afternoon and he says, look, look unto me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. I'm going to pray. And Scott, if you want to sing between three and 13 songs, it'd be fine. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we appreciate you so much, Father. And we want to appreciate you more, Father. We want to experience what it's like to have gratitude overflowing in our hearts, Father, that nothing by any means can shake our foundation, God. We want to experience your grace. We want to experience your goodness, God. We want to see you save utterly. We want to experience your intercessory work on our behalf. We want to come boldly before the throne of grace, Father. We ask you now, help us in our time of need. God, there are so many requests in this room. We all need your grace, Father. Help us, Jesus, realize that grace. David said, I would have given up hope if I didn't expect to see your goodness in the land of the living. So, Father, we stand as a people and we say, we expect to see your goodness right here in Shelbyville Christian Assembly, right now, in our present situation, God. Help us, Jesus, expect everything that you promised. In Jesus' name, amen. Like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say 
It is well, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate. And has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul, it is well with my soul, it is well, it is well with my soul. Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Amen. Amen. Father, we dismiss ourselves from this place and we just ask that your grace go with us and that your conviction be upon us. 
And may we glorify you throughout this day. In Jesus' name, amen.